Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. To Revelation chapter 2. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going through the first uh, couple chapters, few chapters of Revelation, uh, particularly looking at the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, last week, we talked about the church of Ephesus, and now the text I just read to you, uh, Re- Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. If you don't know where Revelation is, it's the last book in the Bible. Start in the back, work your way foot forward, and you'll find it rather quickly. And this morning, we're going to look at the second of those churches, the church at Smyrna. Let's remember that these letters are written to local churches. Yes, they are. Uh, in particular context, in particular context, particularly the church in Smyrna, as we'll see the context here in a moment. But notice how these letters end that the Lord says to the churches, plural. And so while this message is particular for particular churches, the message is also to be received by all of these churches, and even our church to this day, the church at Riverside, the church in River Ridge. It's written to the churches, plural, for all of us to hear and to receive. And so uh, remember, these letters are not just for us to kind of give a sneak peek behind the scenes and say, man, that church is really struggling with this, or man, this real church doesn't really have it together. But it's, it's causing us to peek into our own hearts and to get us to put our eyes on Christ and get this glorious picture of Christ and his church and consider our own ways that we might live, as the Bible says, as more than conquerors and in Jesus Christ. You might notice, let me point this out before we go any farther. In fact, there's a, a book, a wonderful book on the book of Revelation by William Hendrickson uh, called More Than Conquerors. And you'll notice at the end of a lot of these letters, it says, to him who conquers. And so what the Bible, what the book of Revelation is kind of getting across to us here is that how do we live uh, victoriously in the, in, in the times that we live in? How do we live as conquerors through him who loves us and calls us according to his purpose? How do we live in ways that matter? How do we live in victory even here, even now, even in 2022? So, so let's keep building. We talked about Ephesus last week. They worked hard. They toiled. But their love, their heart for Christ had, had, had waned. And so we saw that. Perhaps it was their love for the lost or the love for each other. All of that included their, their love had died out, so the Lord had called them back to the first love. And now we hear another letter to another church in the region. It's a prominent place, much like Ephesus. It's likely a lesser-known church. Remember, Ephesus was likely a very prominent church with prominent ministers who had walked through its doors. It's a lesser-known church, but man, was God at work at the church in Smyrna. In fact, you'll notice, I said last week, that there's a a common uh, structure to these letters where we get our eyes on Christ, which we will hear in a moment, and then there's an evaluation of the church, and the Lord typically tells them, but this I have against you, much like he told Ephesus, but this I have against you, that you have fallen away from your first love. Something perhaps you noticed as I read the, church, the letter to the church in Smyrna, the Lord doesn't say that. He doesn't say he has anything against him. So this is a glorious church that, that we don't see that the Lord say, but this I have against you. God is at work at the church at Smyrna, and we have great 
stuff to learn from the church at Smyrna. Here's a church that loves so much. They love Christ so much. They love getting the gospel to people who don't know the Lord. They love each other so much that they are willing to forsake their lives even unto death for the sake of the gospel. Would we have a heart of Smyrna? Let's take a look at the city of Smyrna. I told you about the book of the, the city of Ephesus last week. Let me give you a snapshot of Smyrna. Here are some of the things that I read about Smyrna. Uh, some of this is coming from that book, More Than Conquerors, by William Hendrickson and, and other places as well. Let me tell you a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna competed with Ephesus, remember the one we read last week, to be a leading city of the Roman Empire. It was located approximately 35 to 40 miles north of Ephesus and was also a port city, much like Ephesus. Smyrna is located on an arm of the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor and could be considered a rival to Ephesus. Like Ephesus, it had a larger population, estimated around 200,000 people. It claimed to be, quote, the first city of Asia in beauty and size. Smyrna was picturesque, sloping up from the sea with the city's main buildings perching atop the rounded hill. Some called it the crown of Smyrna. With its location, the city often enjoys a breeze coming from the sea, rendering it fresh and cool even in the summer. Much like when you stand on top of the levee in River Ridge and that breeze just blows up nice and cool in the middle of summer. That's not real, right? So you know that. Nothing like here. It's high, a tough amount. It feels really good. It's a place you want to go. A cool breeze even in the summer. Can you imagine? A beautiful city. It's the traditional birthplace of Homer and was also known as an academic center for the sciences. Combining the location on the sea and the scholarship of the population added to the place that as a place of a port city of financial wealth, it drew the attention of Roman leaders. So Smyrna, this is important for us to understand what the people of God are living in this time. So Smyrna was also a center of emperor worship. Having won the privilege of the Roman Senate in AD 23 out of over another 11 cities, Smyrna was chosen to build the first temple in honor of Tiberius. So from its beginning, Smyrna was regarded as a faithful and loyal ally of Rome. In fact, it was synonymous with faithfulness. To talk about a city of Smyrna, immediately what would come to mind is is faithfulness. It was even said later, long after this time, that the Roman soldiers, Smyrna found out, the people at Smyrna were at a meeting and they they heard that the Roman soldiers were off fighting in the winter and they had no coats. So it says that the people of Smyrna took off their coats to send them to the Roman soldiers. They loved them so much. They were faithful to Caesar. They were faithful to the emperor. They were faithful to Rome. And perhaps we could say that they were faithful to Rome even unto death. There was even a temple dedicated to the worship of Rome. Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was a wealthy city. It was a cultured city. It was a patriotic city. And in this city was a church, the church in Smyrna. And though not recorded, we assume that the church in Smyrna was founded somewhere between 53 and 56 A.D., some point in the book, some point as we read in the book of Acts, that the word of God made its way through Asia. And some point during that time, the church of Smyrna was planted. So it was some 40 years old at this time. Perhaps, maybe I'll talk more about him at the end. 
A bishop of the church of Smyrna was an early church leader and an early church martyr by the name of Polycarp, who was supposed a disciple, a pupil of John, who was writing this letter. He was possibly part of the church during this time of the writing, but definitely was part of the church some years later. So understand this. Why do I tell you all this? Into this culture of financial excess and pagan worship and emperor worship and and national worship, the Christians were receiving a message and declaring a message that they were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So you can imagine that what they were to face, and you read it in this letter, and perhaps you're starting to see why they were told this, that they were facing tribulation, they were facing slander, they were facing poverty, all because they proclaimed the name of Jesus in the beautiful city of Smyrna. So let's go ahead and get our eyes on Jesus. That's how all of these letters start, remind you. This is how all these letters start. They take from Revelation chapter 1 where John gets this glorious vision of the resurrected Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. And so as Paul, as, Paul, that's, as John is writing to the church in Smyrna as he, he sees this and the Lord is speaking to John and telling this church in Smyrna, the very first thing that they do is getting their eyes on Christ. And there's a principle I think to learn here. Start with what you know. Start with what you know. I tell people this, maybe my kids when they're taking a test or other people when they're overwhelmed, what's going on around them. Perhaps you need to tell this to yourself sometimes when you don't know what's going on, you're confused about the situation. Start with what you know. And when you start with what you know, you start what's true, you start with that, you'll find yourself to be very grounded and be able to move on from there. And so, so how these letters start with all this, what these churches are facing, is start with what you know. Start with who Christ is. And if we start with who Christ is, then that will change everything, right? And that will set our direction in the way that they should go. That will set their direction in facing this tribulation in turmoil. So start with what you know. Start with the one who sees you, who knows you. Christ, as we see in Revelation chapter 1, who is stable and strong, who walks among you, who is wise with hair like the whitest of wool, who is the first and last and died, who came to life. So, so see the picture that the Lord declares to the church in Smyrna. Verse 8. And to the angel in the church in Smyrna write, here's the picture of Christ. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, I know I already read the passage to you, but pretend like you don't know what's going on in this church quite yet. What do they need to hear? And he declares to them, you are the the first and the last. Christ is the the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and the, the finisher of history. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning and end. He's divine and eternal. Perhaps this is calling to mind the apocalyptic literature of Daniel chapter 7 where he's described, Jesus is the son of man, as the ancient of days. He is righteous. He is divine. All things are done by him good and well. He is the judge. He sees all of history. He directs all of history to its proper end. What he declares and ordains will come to pass. For he is the first and last. He will have the last word. So you can imagine the, tr- the trembling, 
the poverty, the slander, the tribulation that they are facing, look to Christ. He will have the last word. Fear not. What's more, not only is he the first and last, but do you hear all else Christ is described? That he died and he came to life. Not only is he divine, but your Christ is taken on flesh and he died so that we too might be resurrected. And all of those who are in Christ have been resurrected and will be resurrected and have nothing to fear. This Christ who walks among you, this Christ who sees you, this Christ who is with you is the conqueror of death. He died, and behold, he's alive forevermore, and he himself holds the keys to death in Hades. He has conquered death, and your future is secure. He is governing the future. He's directing the future. And by the way, believer, nothing will snatch you out of his hand, for he loved you. He died for you. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 tells us that. And nothing will snatch you out of his hand. Death is no problem for him and no longer a problem for you or me. Amen. Jesus is everything that we've hoped for. He's everything that we need, and he's exactly what we need. Church at Smyrna, church at Riverside, he is the first and last. He died, and he has come to life. Oh, show us Christ. We need to hear this. And then we read about the church in Smyrna. Here's the picture of Christ that they are given to to ground them, to settle their hearts, to settle their faith to settle them from the tribulation they face. And with our gaze upon Christ, not only do we see a picture of Christ, the second big thing I want you to see is things are better than they seem. Things are better than they seem. Here's how it's described. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. I said things are better than they seem. But let's be honest here for a moment that that things are difficult. There is no doubt about what we read in Revelation chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 that things for the church in Smyrna, times are tough for him. For them. Yes, things are tough. Yes, let's be honest, we're not putting on rose-colored glasses and kind of denying the struggle that they are facing. Neither is the Lord. He's saying, yes, you have tribulation. You're experiencing poverty. You are being slandered. You will suffer. You will be thrown into prison. You will be tested. So it is clear that, yes, things are tough. Particularly what they face is tribulation and, and poverty. The persecution that they are experiencing is costing them their very lives, and even the lives they live are poor by worldly standards. Remember Smyrna. I told you about them a second ago. They're loyal to Rome, and anyone loyal to another was ostracized and and thought of less than, and it's costing them money. They're considered outsiders, and their faith is costing them work. So what's going on in the church at Smyrna is they're suffering socially and financially. Because they are dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are eliminated from some circles. And so all of this wealth and all of these jobs that the city of Smyrna was able to have, they are set aside for those jobs, set away from those jobs. They're ostracized for those things. They are not welcome into certain circles. They're not welcome into certain jobs because they are loyal to Christ and faithful to Christ above faithfulness 
to Rome and to the powers that be at that time. It used to be, in our day and age, bring this to modern terms, that to join a local church would sometimes help you in the community. Now we're finding to be a part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching local church, sometimes that costs you because you are declaring things that are often against the ways of the world. That's what they were experiencing. So socially, they were ostracized. They were facing tribulation. Financially, they were ostracized because they weren't able to enjoy certain jobs and and certain social circles, and so they were eliminated from those things. So you can imagine, it was costly. It was tough. They were really poor. They were really, it goes on to say, yes, things are tough, and yes, you will be slandered. They're not just suffering physically, but emotionally and verbally, they are being torn apart. And perhaps their Christ, too, is being blasphemed. And so what they're hearing is not that, oh, that's, that's just what, what you believe, that's great. Like, like, they are talked bad about. They are blasphemed. They are slandered and facing false accusations, and people are lying about them. That's what they're facing. Are, are, are things t- yes, yes, things are hard for the church at Smyrna, living in a city like that. The Lord even tells them, yes, you will suffer. Some of you will even be thrown into prison. Now understand this about prison in this day, what the Lord is telling us. So, so I told you things are better than they seem, but let's be honest, things are really hard. So the idea of prison, so yes, you will suffer. It says some of you will be thrown into prison. Let's be honest about this. This idea of prison is a far cry from the prison. The, excuse me. The idea of prison today is a far cry from the prison of the ancient world. Here's what one author writes. In our culture, prisoners are given the basic necessities of life, bed, clothing, blankets, food, and basic medical care. Roman prisons did not guarantee any such provisions. For a believer to be thrown into a public prison could very easily mean a death sentence. To think about being in a cell could mean dying from lack of water or the fear of being beaten to death by a prison guard. Jesus was warning them that the pressure to come would be immense. They face tribulation, the Bible says. They face poverty because of who they proclaim. They face slander. They face prison and suffering. And and don't miss this. Don't miss this. They face spiritual warfare. I think we forget about this sometimes. That we battle not only against flesh and blood, but principalities and rulers and darkness. That there is spiritual warfare and it is real, and it is hard of what these folks are facing. Did you hear how it's described? That de- the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. In fact, he calls the Jews that are slandering them that they are the, the synagogue of Satan. So, so don't miss this, that this tribulation is not just physical. This is spiritual, and maybe you felt this before in your life. When you're pursuing the Lord and trying to pursue the Lord, there are all sorts of non-physical obstacles that come in your way. Spiritual warfare is real. Tribulation is real. It's, it's hard. It's painful. But do not fear. Things are better than they seem, church and smart. Oh, man, they, they are hard. Let's be honest. But those first little words of verse 9, Get you every time. Jesus speaking, resurrected Christ speaking. I know, 
I know. He knows. Hard times are better because the resurrected Christ, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, he knows. What what more to stabilize our soul and to steady our shaking knees as we face tribulations and trials and slander and spiritual warfare and physical warfare is to know that he knows. He sees you. The old time, his eyes on the sparrow and he's watching you. And he understands. This is so important, isn't it? That yes, I, I, I do feel better when, when I'm seen, when I'm, when I'm recognized by, by the, the one who saved me, the one who dies for me. He sees me and he knows what I'm going through and he understands for he was like us in every way and yet without sin. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured slander. He endured shame. Like a sheep led to slaughter, yet he did not open his mouth. He sees. He knows. And the resurrected Christ understands what you're walking through. And he's with you. He knows. You're not forgotten, church at Smyrna. You're not forgotten, person who's sitting here at Riverside this morning. You're not forgotten. You're not alone. You're understood. And the one who made you is with you and knows you What? Grace. What grace? So to be clear, Jesus isn't ignoring their suffering or somehow suggesting that suffering doesn't hurt. It's real, but so is Jesus. So is our hope. So is our resurrected Christ, who is the first and last who died and has come to life. That is true. So yes, I see you. I know you. The tribulation, the poverty, all of that, the spiritual warfare, I see that. I know that. I understand that. He knows spiritual warfare. Remember the temptation in the desert with Satan, by the way. He knows. Or even in the garden. He knows. But know this. Things are better than they seem. And oh, they're bad for the church in Smyrna. But know you are truly the Lord's people. Do you see how this letter describes this in verse 9? And the slander of those who say that they are Jews. So this is even coming from the Jews, not those Jews who turned and believed in Christ as the Messiah, but the ones that are described in the Bible as being a brood of vipers, those who who rejected Christ and crucified Christ. It's, It's those Jews that hate the Christians along. So not only this religious persecution they're facing from the Jews of the day that did not believe in Christ and also the Romans and the people in Smyrna and all those of what they were experiencing, that they who are Jews are not but a synagogue of Satan. So that's who they are. They claim to be God's people, but they are not Brothers and sisters in Smyrna, you are truly God's people, not born of physical birth, but you have been born again by the Spirit. Those are truly God's people. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've been saved by him, you are truly God's people. So know this. Yes, it's really bad, but no, you are truly the Lord's people. You are his beloved. Here's what it says that to him who loves us, and been freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made you, this is Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory. You are truly God's people. You are sons and daughters of the first and the last, the one who conquered death. This is glorious. And know this too. To look at how we describe that you will be thrown into prison. Satan will throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. 
So know this, you are truly the Lord's people and the one he loves, he will sanctify and the one he sanctifies, he will glorify. He will refine you and even use the tactics of Smyrna, even use the tactics of those who hate you and throw you into prison in order to test you and refine you. James chapter one, knowing this, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect and complete result that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. So even the testing of your faith, even being thrown into prison, know this, that the Lord will refine you and make you more like Christ and he will burn off the dross, he will burn off the sin and you will come out of that fire refined, not destroyed. Know this. Know this, you're God's people and he's refining you. And know this, know this, you are rich. Do you see that little parentheses there? Coming back to it now, verse nine. I know your tribulation and poverty, slander, all this, but you are rich and the crown of life awaits you. You may not own the world, But the one who owns the world owns you, and you are rich. Kingdom standards, get this application here. Kingdom standards are not equal to earthly standards. By worldly standards, yes, some of you are poor, but you are rich if you have Christ. We have got to know what really counts. This is so crucial to life, to know what really matters. And it's not if you're accepted by the political parties that be at the time, like in Smyrna, how they lifted up Rome. That's, that's not what makes you rich. What, not, what doesn't make you rich is a comfortable life, a well-accepted life, or whatever it might be. How much money you have, that's not what makes you rich. What makes you rich is that you are loved by the Most High God, and He will give you the crown of life. That's what really matters. Yes, you are experiencing tribulation and poverty, but yes, it is true, you are rich. Parents, we have got to help our kids understand this. We've got to be living by the right scorecard. Now, I'm not saying you earn salvation by keeping score. The more check boxes you make, you're saved. We're saved by grace alone, you understand. But how do we count what matters? If, if, if your kids were to look at your life, say, man, that matters to mom and dad more than anything. That's what they give their life for. That's what they're faithful unto death for. Yes, they enjoy many things, but that is the one thing that matters. Students, teenagers, you need to seek wisdom in what really matters. If you don't, you will get stuck in an endless cycle of demands that never satisfy you. Life is very demanding for, for students and teenagers. You'll be like a basket trying to hold water, constantly taking things in, but never filling up if you're seeking your identity from people and your looks, your affiliations, your social circles, and people will lead you to stray. They will lie to you because of their own misunderstanding of what is true and right. And it will be like the blind leading the blind. What really matters is Christ and him alone. Give your life for that. Give your life for that. In that pursuit, you will be truly rich. And so the final thing he tells them. Life in this world, in this world you will have troubles. But listen to what he says. For ten days you will have tribulation. So we see the picture of Christ Things aren't as bad as they seem because you have Christ. Yes, they're bad, but 
Christ is with you. The third thing I want you to see this morning, so Christ, things aren't as bad as they seem, forever is coming. Forever is coming. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the last thing that the Lord and our Savior resurrected Christ tells this church in Smyrna and tells our churches today that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now this could be actual 10 days in a Roman prison. This could cost you life, your life to be in a prison for 10 days. But likely what the Lord is telling these folks, what they would understand that 10 would be a fullness of time. That after 10 days, after 10 days, you will be out of prison. What he's getting across, that even in this warning that there is affliction, there is a definite end to your suffering. Ten days and that's it. The fullness of time, that's it. This was not forever, right? That's one of the best things we can tell ourselves as we go through difficulties in this world. This is not forever. We're living for forever. This won't last forever. A definite period, a full period, ten days, but not forever. Amen. This won't last forever. And what's more, the second death is not to be feared. Fear not, the second death will not hurt you. You may die in the body, this physical body will die. But when this body dies, the mortal is swallowed up by life. Eternal life forevermore. This is the crown of life that awaits. Eternal life at the right hand of the Lord, with whom there are pleasures forevermore. The second death will not hurt you. For even if you die, you will be swallowed up by life. This reminds me of people like Samuel Lamb, who's about 10 or so years ago passed away, but he was influential in the underground church in China, never selling out to, to the powers that be. He spent 20 years in a labor prison, and when he got out, he kept planting more churches, and he said, more persecution, more growth. Reminds of people like Tertullian who said, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. It reminds you of stories that you might see of modern day martyrs. If you look at Voice of Martyrs, Google that. And you'll see people who are giving their lives even to this day, not fearing the second death, but living for eternal life. Not fearing the second death, but giving their life, knowing that the victory crown awaits. So what? So what? Church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death because the second death will not hurt you and a crown of life awaits. So imagine hearing this living in a city like Smyrna who was so faithful to the powers that be. And even today, the world will hate those who proclaim a king, who proclaim a Lord other than the king who has appointed, whom the Lord has appointed. In a city faithful to Rome, be faithful to your true Lord. And in that, the Bible says, you will be more than conquerors, the one who conquers. How do we conquer? By trusting, not wielding the sword, but laying down our lives and trusting, trusting the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. Where is your confidence? Is your confidence in your skill? Is your confidence in 
your social circles? Is your confidence in your financial wealth? Is your confidence that nobody slanders and speaks well of you? Is your confidence that you avoid persecution? Or is your confidence that the one who made you is with you and he conquered death and he will not let me go? When we know who he is, and who he has made us and is making us, faithfulness all of a sudden doesn't seem so scary. For even when we are faithless, the Bible says, he remains faithful. In what area do you need to be more faithful? To trust him. Maybe it's social circles that you're scared to speak of the name of Christ or to invite people to church. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm, I'm just challenging you. Like this, this is to the churches. I'm challenging myself. What scorecard are you using to, to decide whether you're rich or not? How Christ sees you matters. Are, are you aware of spiritual warfare? Do you realize that things are better than they seem for Christ is with you? I told you about Polycarp. I'm going to end with the story of Polycarp. He was a bishop, perhaps, of the church of Smyrna at this time, and and he took this seriously, be faithful unto death. Maybe you know his story. Polycarp, this is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a, it's a, a book full of the martyrs of the early church. Here's what it writes, says, Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. Remember, he's a disciple of John likely part of this church at this time, but certainly sometime later, shortly after at least. After feasting the guards who apprehended him, feasting with the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him in. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. In other words, say Caesar is Lord. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he would stand immovable, the flames on their kindling encircled his body like an arch without touching him, and the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with a sword, when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. But his body at the insignation of the enemies of the gospel, especially the Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile, And the request of his friends who wished to give him a Christian burial rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones and as much as his remains possible and caused them to be decently interred. Eighty-six years I have served him and he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? May we say, come what may, but I will keep my rudder true. I will pursue him with everything I have. I will fear not, no matter what I faced, because I know the one who loved me and has freed me from my sins. And I know that I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me and has called me according to his purpose, that neither life nor death nor rulers nor angels nor principalities, nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so I will keep my rudder true, knowing I have not the second death to fear, 
that suffering will end and I will receive the crown of life. I will be faithful unto death. May that be true for us. Let's pray.